In Acts chapter 7, verse 1, the Bible says, Are these things true? The high priest asked. Brothers and fathers, he replied, Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, and before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, Leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him moved to this land in which you're now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. And now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. And when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there for the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word, God. We pray that we will continue to worship now as we go into a time of studying your word. God, right now, I just pray that you'll open my spiritual eyes and ears that I hear and see what you want me to hear and see. Yeah, Holy Spirit, we're praying that you will do what only you can do, what our worship can't do, what our preaching can't do. God, only you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, can transform hearts. So right now, I lay my heart before you, and I ask you to bring transformation into my life. Help me to see, God, where I truly stand with you. Tune in my heart to you, God. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So why do we need a savior? Well, I don't really have a good introduction for you today. Let's just go right into the text. <laughs> Here's what Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says. This is, this is called the Proto-Evangelica. So it is the first prophecy in the Bible. Okay, so check this out. This is right after the fall. Eve has taken the forbidden fruit. She gave it to Adam. They ate everything's messed up. This is part of the curse. This is whenever God is cursing the serpent, okay? This is one verse. Look at this one verse. It's loaded with prophecy. And he said, God said, now we'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. Interesting three things here. First thing is we see a battle. Enmity means war. There's going to be a battle between the seeds right here and this seed. This is, if you notice, the second seed is capitalized because it's speaking of deity. And the interesting here, friend, is that, every, listen, 
Biologically, a woman does not have a seed, she has an egg. Everywhere you see in the Bible, you see, a, you see a, the sin of man, the sin of the fathers coming through the seed. So why does it say the seed of a woman? Because we see in the New Testament, there's a supernatural planting of the seed in Mary to where she is, she's a, the, the Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. So here we got the prophecy right here of a seed. The seed is speaking of Jesus, the capitalized right here, because he is, because he is God. The birth right here, the, listen to this, right after the fall, God is already telling us, I got a solution for your problem, your sin problem already. And it's going to be the Messiah. It's going to be Jesus. And then we see a bruising right here. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The bruising of the hill is speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, the death, the burial, the resurrection. That is, that, listen, that is our salvation. That, that a, the perfect, listen, 100% God, 100% man died for our sins. The bruised king, get that, listen, get that into your heart and your mind this morning as we go into the sermon that Stephen is about to preach. We're just gonna look at a part of it because it's so rich. It is so rich, we can only cover about 15 verses of it this morning, because God's got something very good for us this morning. If you want something from God this morning, listen, I don't know what you're doing here this morning. I don't know what your heart feels like, what your soul feels like, and that's not up to me. It's none of my business. But here's what I know, that whenever we come to God's house, and we worship God, and we open his word, and we sincerely ask for the Holy Spirit to bring transformation into our lives, then God can do something supernatural right here in this moment in your life. But see, that's contingent on what you're wanting. Are you wanting him to move? Are you, are you praying and asking? Are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Are you angry? Are you upset? Are you tense? Are you agitated? Are you distracted? Oh, listen, if any of those things are rolling through your heart and your mind right now, that's not from God. You need to do some serious praying right now because you're going to miss some good truth that God has for you this morning. Not in my sermon, but in the text. And here we go. Here it is. This is Stephen's, this is his apologia right here. Apologia, that's where we get the word apologetics. Apologetics is not us as Christians apologizing for Jesus. Apologia means defense. It's a defense of the gospel. Anybody that studies apologetics or or is an apologist, they're a person who defends the faith. They don't make an apology, so don't misunderstand that. So here's his defense. And the the, the high priest, Stephen is standing before 71 of the most powerful lawyers in Israel. They're in an elevated state. Here he is, one man. He's He's not one of the apostles. He's just a dude that was picked out to serve tables. And here he's going to give his apologia to them. He says, brothers and fathers, he replied, listen, the God of glory, oh, that's what he is. He is the God of glory. And listen, nobody in that room that day would be disagreeing with this. They did, they do, and they know that he, I just got to ask you today, we may not get very far into this sermon, by the way. (laughs) Do you believe that he is the God of glory? No, no, I'm sorry, if you do believe he is the God of glory, what does that mean to you? Now, glory, his weightiness, his holiness, that, 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 that thing that no one, no man can look at and live, the God of glory. See, whenever, whenever Stephen says, the God of glory, 
What he's doing is he's putting God on an elevated place right here because what's happened is he's been accused of blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the temple. And he's saying right here, hey, listen, I'm going to start off and let you know something right now that God's above everything. Hey, listen, today, understand this church. God is above. He is high. He is above everything. He is above every church, every institution, every nation, all that he is. He, listen, he holds everything together by the power of his word. He is high. I mean, so I ask you this is that our problem is this. It's that many times we put ourselves high and holy. When we say, I don't really need a savior. I'm a good person. I mean, I don't do this. I don't do that. I mean, I'm not only, listen, only God sends bad people to hell and good people go to heaven. Well, if that's the case, then you don't need a savior. How do you categorize what is good and what is bad, by the way? See, we as mankind have got a different category than Jesus. You realize that, right? When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why don't you call me good? There's none good except God alone. So get that right now in our hearts right now. So if we just start out talking about this, why do we need a Savior? I'll go ahead and give you the end of the sermon right now because we are wretched. We are sinful. There is nothing in and of ourselves that is good or deserving of God. See what the gospel, what's the gospel of God? Listen, the gospel is the grace of God that covers our wretchedness, that instills within us anything good that draws us to him. So the God of glory, he appeared to our father Abraham. That's the father of the faith right here. When he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran, and he said to him, leave your country, and not just your country, but leave your relatives. And why did he have to leave his relatives? Because Terah is his father, and his father was an idol worshiper. You've got to leave all this behind. And go to the land, and this is so interesting to me. This is out of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, if you go read it for yourself. God comes to this dude. Listen, there is nothing good in and of Abraham that God should call him. I mean, why does God call Abraham? Go read that. Go study that for yourself. Is it because Abraham was a faithful, good man? No, because this is God's grace. God chooses who he wants to choose. Are you saved this morning? Are you in Christ? Have you been born again? Yep. Here's what I want to tell you something. That isn't because you were good. That's because God's grace drew you to himself. You should be rejoicing this morning. What is, let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Here's what Jesus said. As they were traveling on the road, someone came to Jesus. They said, I will follow you wherever you go. I want to go live my best life now. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is not going to be a life of prosperity. Nowhere does Jesus say following him equals prosperity. Quite the opposite. Hey, listen, it's not a very good seeker-sensitive sermon he's preaching right here, by the way. <laughs> then he said to another, follow me, Lord. He said, first, let me go bury my father. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds like a good thing, right? But Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the euangelia, the news of the kingdom of God. Man, that seems kind of harsh, kind of hard. Come on, Jesus, you're going to hurt his feelings. I mean, I mean so shouldn't you tell him you can go back and bury your dad and then come follow me? No, no, no. If, listen, Jesus makes it very clear. If I'm not willing to put him number one, then I'm going to struggle in this. I might as well just go on back home right now. 
Because listen, your faith is not contingent on, your salvation is not connected to your mom and your dad or your son and your daughter, your brother and your sister. Your salvation is connected to the complete work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, you being in Christ. That's your salvation. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say goodbye to those at my house, my family. But Jesus said, no one putting his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Does that make you feel good this morning? (laughs) Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus said, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and how difficult is the road that leads to life and few find it. Okay, so here's our attention we've got this morning, my friend. Hey, all you gotta do is just place your faith in Jesus and you'll be saved and go to heaven. Come sign the card, say the prayer and you're in. And, and, and listen, we never talk about the difficult road. We never talk about selling out 100%. So we do. We put categories in. We say, okay, well, this is me being saved, and this is discipleship. See, me being saved, that's just me saying the prayer and asking Jesus to come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. But that discipleship, that's the serious stuff. Those are, that's for the fanatics. Nowhere in the Bible does it make that distinction. Only two times in the Bible do you find the word Christian. And that's a derogatory term first in the book of Acts. We'll see that later on. And then in 1 Peter. Other than that, it's just disciple. There's no categories there. When you listen, a true Christian is a true disciple, a follower of Jesus. You can't separate the two. Amen. So we say, man, yeah, but that's real hard. That's only for the disciples. No, 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 no. It's for all those in Christ Jesus. So then he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to his land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. So what he's saying is Abraham didn't even get to live. There's a promise, but he didn't get to live in that promise. But he promised to give it to him as a possession. Let me ask you something. Is there any promises that Jesus has given you? Is he coming back again? There's going to be a new heaven, new earth. And to his descendants, that's his seed. Matter of fact, literal transition right there. You just saw, I mean, translation is seed. You saw that a while ago, even in Genesis. And after him, even though he was childless, I think it's up to 100 years old before he has a promised child. That's an impossible thing. 100 years old, his wife's about 90-something, and that's when they have the promised child. An impossible thing. Let me ask you something. Is it impossible for a virgin to give birth? Listen, God specializes, his specialty is in impossible situations. Now listen, I know, listen, we've taken that, our prosperity preachers have taken that and twisted that and say, hey, it's all, don't worry about your impossible situation. God's going to make sure and get you through this. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that is such heresy. The impossible situation is God getting you through the trials and the tribulations of this life, through the brokenness, the heartache, and the disasters of this life. So God spoke in this way, his, descend, his, his seed, 
would be strangers. So this is, this is our Genesis chapter 15. This is God giving Abraham his covenant. God making a covenant with Abraham, the father of his faith. Listen to this, here's what he says. Here's a, here's a great promise that he gives to Abraham. He says, listen, your seed will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed. Here's the good news for your children, okay? Your children are all gonna be slaves and they're gonna be, it's gonna be bad, it's gonna be hard, they're gonna be oppressed. And they'll be enslaved and oppressed for them for 400, wrap your mind around that. United States of America is not even 250 years old yet. 400 years of being enslaved, being under this oppression. What do you think, that Abraham heard that and said, wow, man, great for my kids. That's wonderful. And he says, listen, here's where we gotta wrap our mind around. This is the extraordinary way that our God works. See, so many of us, when we run into hard times in our life, we think, oh man, what did I do wrong? Because I'm not, I'm not living that prosperity thing that I hear all the TV preachers preaching about. I'm not living this blessed life. I mean, I, I go to church and everybody looks so great. Man, look at all these wonderful, beautiful people all around me. Man, their lives are all together. They got it all figured out. What's wrong with me? Well, it, it, hey, it may not be that anything is wrong with where you are. It may be that God has you right where you need to be. You may need to be in the crucible. You may need to be in pressure. You may need to be under the strain right now. Look at what God does with everybody in the Bible. He doesn't just give them an easy life and then everything falls in the line for them and it's all great and easy. Usually the people that he uses the most are the ones who have been crushed the hardest. Oh, look at this, James 1, 2, and 4. Was anybody here from when we went through the study of James? One person? All right. <laughs> he says, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you experience various trials, all different kinds of variety, every trial you run into, consider it great joy. How many of us do that? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be, and here it is, mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now listen, why does your faith need to be tested? Because here's what you have to understand. Please hear me this morning. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, you've got to hear this. This is why you're here. You can drift off and think about everything else after this, but hear this. The devil is a master at counterfeiting. He counterfeits everything beautiful and wonderful of God. Even counterfeiting the way we feel and think about the grace of God. There are so many people that think they are in Christ and yet they are not. And they have a counterfeit feelings, all these feelings and all these counterfeit experiences. But let me tell you something, the devil's a master at counterfeiting all the good things of God, but here's what he struggles with. He, he, he struggles with counterfeiting Testing and joy. He can make us happy, make us feel happy, but listen, joy is our relationship with Jesus. He can't counterfeit that. He can't counterfeit that whenever our life is getting crushed that we're filled with joy. He can't do that. So why does God test your faith? Listen, God needs to know where your faith is. Because you need to know where your faith is. 
God knows everything about you. Your testing of your faith is for you, for you to know if it's genuine, it's true. Whenever you are God, you're in the pressure cooker and there's joy. See, listen, whenever I'm put in the pressure cooker and I pull away from God, I get mad and say, man, if this is being saved, this is being a Christian, I don't want any of this. I just prove that I don't have the Holy Spirit in me. But whenever I'm in the pressure cooker and I draw closer to God and there's a joy, unspeakable joy, full of glory stirring in my heart, then I know my faith is genuine. And God says, I will judge the nation and they will serve that, that they will serve as slaves. Listen, vengeance is God's alone. You do realize that, right? When you, when, whenever you try to take vengeance for someone who has done you wrong, you just jumped over God's work in your life and in their life. Vengeance is based on anger. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by how you get vengeance on one another. Is that what he said? <laughs> and it isn't. To the whole, everybody will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. He said, just as I've forgiven you, so you forgive each other. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, the old flesh that has been discarded and cut away and left behind. Just as in salvation, we are to leave the flesh behind. The fleshly nature, the sinful nature is to be cut away from our heart and our soul and left behind. After this, his father Isaac circumcised him on the eighth day. Eighth day is interesting because God created all the world. Six days, seventh day, took a day of rest, and then the first day is the eighth day. New birth, new beginning. Circumcision is a sign. Listen, for us today, circumcision didn't save anybody, by the way, just like baptism doesn't save anybody today. Baptism is signifying a new birth, a new beginning. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous. We jumped all the way from the patriarchs to Joseph. Joseph and sold him. So we got, so Jacob has 13 children. He has 12 sons. So of the 12 sons, he's got, I don't know if you call four wives. He's got four women that have had children through him. We'll just say wives, okay, to be on the nice side. Only have a good category for that. He's got four women that gave birth to these children, okay? Here's the thing. He's got a favorite wife, Rachel. From Rachel, he has the son, Joseph. And he favors Joseph. You know that? Many of you have heard the Bible story. He gave Joseph the coat of many colors. Well, all the rest of the, you got, you got the other 10 brothers. And that Benjamin also, he comes later. But you got the other 10 brothers. They go out and they're like the roughnecks. They work out in the field and they work hard every day. And he stays at home. He's got the lily white soft hands. And he stays there with his mama. And he's just home every day. And he gets all this special treatment. And so as a result, the 10 other brothers get jealous of him. And they hate him. He even comes to them one day and he says, hey, listen, guys, I had a dream. And they're like, oh, yeah, tell us about the dream. Well, here's my dream. I had a dream. And, and in the dream, there was these, these 12 stars. And he gives, all, and, what is, and, what, and the, it's got these stars and the hay and all this kind of, and they're all bowing down to me. And, and, and they know exactly what the interpretation is. They're like, really, little brother? You think we're going to bow down to you one day? And then he had another one where he saw the, the, the sun and the moon bowing down to him. That's his father. And he went and told his father and mother, told them. And they were like, kind of backed up. And they're like, what? 
but the brothers hated him all the more. So here's what I want to show you this morning. He was the beloved son. His father was devoted to him. His father had this strong devotion to him, giving him blessing after blessing, making life so easy on him, the coat of many colors. And he also had a faultless distinction in him. You know, there's not one sin recorded about Joseph. Now listen, I'm not saying that Joseph wasn't a sinner. He was a sinner, no doubt. But there isn't a single sin recorded about Joseph. Joseph is a foreshadowing of Jesus in many ways, and that's what I want to show you this morning. Jesus, in John 7, 7, his brother said, hey, listen, you got to go to Jerusalem. Go, go and reveal yourself to the festival so everybody will see who you are. And look at this. Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, speaking to his biological brothers, but it does hate me. Listen, the world does not hate baby Jesus in the manger. The world does not hate Jesus healing and feeding the multitudes. But here's the Jesus the world hates. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's what the world hates. Hey, listen. Here's what I gotta ask you this morning. Whenever your sinfulness is revealed by the Holy Spirit, is that something that is Is that something that is pushes you away from God? Or is it something that draws you in? Because whenever our sins, whenever we get to the point to where it pushes us away, then there's a sign right there that I'm in the wrong place spiritually. He said, they hate me because I testify about their evil works. And then also, when he talked about his future dominion, we talked about all of them bowing down to him. The Bible says that as far as Jesus is concerned, everything, everything in, in creation, above the earth, below the earth, all around, is all going to bow its knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's his future dominion. And also they saw he's a, he's a suffering servant also. He was a sent one, so Joseph's there. Well, his dad, Jacob, as Jacob's, Jacob's, his dad says, Israel said to him, that's Jacob, Israel said to Joseph, your brothers you know are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready, I'm sending you to them. I'm ready for you. And Joseph, I'm ready. So here's what Joseph does. Joseph goes out, you know, the coat of many colors, and he goes walking out there to where his brothers are out working every day. Probably got hundreds and hundreds of sheep. I mean, these dudes are working hard, and he's going to send them out there to check on them. See, Joseph would bring back the evil report, the sinful report of his brothers, and that made them hate him even more. And he was a scorned one. When they saw him coming at a distance, and before he had reached them, his own brothers plotted to kill him. Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. They said to one another, oh look, here comes that dream expert. So now come let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now his brothers were stone-cold killers. Their own flesh and blood. And here's what I want, here's what you get this, this morning. God is going to use Joseph to save the ones that intended to kill him. That while I was still a sinner, Jesus Christ died for me on the cross, Romans chapter 5. 
And he was the slain one. Now listen, they didn't really kill Joseph. What happened? It said, then Joseph came to his brothers and they stripped off Joseph's robe. Did they strip off Jesus' robe when they crucified him? They stripped off the robe. They put a scarlet sash on him and they beat him right there. They stripped Joseph of his robe and the robe of many colors he had on. So they took Joseph's robe. They slaughtered him. Go, they dipped the, the, the robe in blood. And they go back and they tell everybody that he's dead. They go tell the dad and everybody that he, he's dead. Look at this. Here's what happens. Judah. Judah, New Testament version of this is Judas. Same word. Judah said to his brothers, hey, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. His brothers pulled Joseph up out of the pit that they'd thrown him in. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver. How many pieces of Judas in the New Testament sells off Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? To the Ishmaelites, and they took Joseph to Egypt. So I want you to imagine this. Joseph's 17 years old at this point. He's had this dream about everybody bowing down to him, and he's been living in comfort every single day of his life. And at 17 years old, he finds himself on a caravan going into Egypt. Doesn't know the language, doesn't know anything about the culture, and here he is on the slave block. He is sold, it said, to a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar, he was, he was, he was one of the high-ranking officials in Pharaoh's government. Right? He was captain of the guards. And here, what happens is that everywhere Joseph goes, God is testing him, purifying him. And this, you know, because I know what you think I'm about to say. Some of y'all know the story. Y'all just sitting there like, oh, yeah, heard this story a million times in church. God raises him up to be the leader. No, no, here's what you have to say. God sanctifies him through pressure and pain and suffering over and over again. See, because when he's in, when he finally learns the language and learns the culture, Potiphar's wife, you know, she makes a move on him. He runs away from her. She falsely accuses him. He ends up in prison for 12 to 13 years for doing the right thing. In prison, he meets Pharaoh's cupbearing shelf. Man, they've got dreams. They can't interpret the dreams. He said, oh, tell me the dream. I'll tell you the interpretation. They tell him the dream. He interprets the dream. One of them that day is going to be executed, and the other one the next day is going to be restored back to his place. And he tells the cupbearers of one. He says, listen, when you get back to Pharaoh, do one little favor, brother. Just remember me. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shake his hand. Thank you. I will. And he gets back up there into Pharaoh's court, and he gives the cup back to Pharaoh, and he forgets all about him another two years in prison before Pharaoh starts having dreams. Because here's what you have to understand. Even when you don't see it, God's working. Even when you don't feel it, God's working. Even when you're, the Bible says he was in the inner dungeon. Don't think he wasn't suffering. And God was working in all of this, in the suffering. Look at Psalms 105, 16 through 19. God says that God called for a famine. Listen, the devil didn't do that. The famine wasn't a result of the devil. The devil said, I'm going to put a famine on the land. God sent the famine. Hear that this morning, dear friend. God sent the famine. This was intentional from God. These suffering over the whole world. He called for a famine on the land of Canaan, cutting off its food supply. He sent someone to Egypt ahead of them. Joseph, who was sold as a... Man, those rotten, mean brothers, they're not the one who sent him to Egypt. God was. See, your, your battle is not against flesh and blood enemies. You do see that, right? See, you think that they are destroying you, and it may just be that God is developing you. 
You may think that everything is against you, but it may just be that God's more for you than you realize. That he's sanctifying and building and developing and working his plan out in your life. Listen, it's not all about you. It's not about you becoming great, you becoming number one, and you becoming prosperous. It's about him and his glory, his plan, what he's doing. You get to be a part of it. Look at this. Do you remember, the, do you remember a while ago what it said in Genesis 3.15, bruising the hill? Look at this. They bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar. Until the time came to fill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. You mean over and over again, all those hard things that Joseph was going through, this was God testing, this was God purifying his character? Yes, that's exactly what the Bible's saying. But God was with him. He was the beloved son. He was a suffering servant, but also we see that he is the exalted sovereign. Because he, here's what happens. It says that he rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to appoint him ruler over all of Egypt and over the whole household. So he comes before Pharaoh when no one can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And he says, hey, listen, he's in the dungeon. 12 years, gets pulled out, they shave him, they clean him up, he goes, stands before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, most powerful nation. Pharaoh tells him the dream, the dreams of like these seven fat cows get eaten up by the seven skinny cows, and the seven skinny cows don't change, and he got seven plump grains of, of, of uh, wheat, and the seven scrawny, nasty ones come and eat them up, and they don't get any bigger, and he's like, I can't, and so Joseph says, hey, interpretation belongs to God. He said, the two dreams are the same thing. Here's what it is. God is telling you, revealing to you, you're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. That's all you got to do is just point somebody over your land to, in, the, in the seven years of plenty to take back, save some, to make it through the seven years of, of famine. And Pharaoh's like, well, who's wiser than you, man? There's nobody in the whole land that's wiser than you. So listen, from the dungeon, from the pit of death, Resurrected up to the second most powerful man in the world. When all was hopeless, when all was gone, when, when everybody thought the devil had won, Jesus resurrected back up to life. Not as a second most powerful man in the land, but as a God of God, King of kings, and Lord of lords. See, there's places where Joseph can't touch Jesus, right? You do get that, right? Every illustration, every worldly illustration is going to fall short when it comes to Jesus. So he rescued him. This is what it says. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph. See, whenever they passed laws, whenever, whenever Pharaoh said, this is a law, this is what we're going to do, he put his signet ring and seal. He said, this is yours. Can you imagine that? He was just in prison. Clothe him with fine linen garments and place a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot, and servants called out before him, make way. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and no one will be able to raise a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt without your, are you kidding me? Here's what it says about Jesus, Ephesians 1.22. God put all things, that's everything good. Listen, I don't, I don't know if we understand this, but all things is all things that are good, all things that are evil, all things that we think are good and all things that we don't understand, all things. God put all things under the authority of Christ. 
And he made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. When the whole land of Egypt was stricken with a famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. Pharaoh told Egypt, you go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. You go, listen to me, this is amazing. You go to the Jewish bruised king and he will be the one that will save you. That, I don't, that, that was a lot more exciting to me than it was y'all evidently because y'all just sitting there looking at me like, yeah, I heard that a million times. You, you do realize something, that the bruised Jew, Jewish king is the one that saved the whole world, right? You do get that. Do you see the beauty in the, in the, the foreshadowing right here? Now, a famine and great suffering came across all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could not find food. Then when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there for the first time. And this is such an interesting story right here. It says that here they are, the, the brothers come up and they bow down before Joseph just like in his dream. Because listen, the dream was God's word. God's word is always going to be fulfilled. God's word will never fail. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, Oh, you're spies. You come to see the weakness of the land. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are the sons of one man. We are honest. Are they really? And they're living a lie. They are living a lie. They have, when they sold Joseph off and, and, and went back to their dad and said he's dead, they watched their dad mourn and come undone. They've been living a lie for 22 years. And they said, oh, we're honest. Your servants are not spies. Then they said to each other, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. Because when you're living a lie, every time something goes wrong, you think, oh, this is God punishing me for what I've done wrong. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we didn't, we would not listen. That's why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen to me. Now we must account for his blood. Reuben saying the same thing. Man, we're going to pay for it now. They did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. When he turned back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them, had him bound before their eyes and led him away just like he was bound and led away to Egypt 22 years before. Joseph then gave them orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's silver to his sack, and he gave them provisions for their journey. This was in order to carry, this is going to be carried out. They loaded the grain on their donkeys and left there. The place where they lodged for that first night, one of them opened a sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver there at the top of the bag. And he said to his brothers, my silver has been returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank, trembling. They turned to one another and said, what has God done to us? Most people would be saying like, oh man, look at this. We got, the, we got our money back. But not them. Everything, they're falling under the condemnation of their sins. So they got to go back a second time. They go back. Joseph tells them, don't come back without Benjamin, his brother, his little brother. And they're like, we, if, if we come back, if we lose him and our, our father will die in his old age, and he said, you don't come back with him, then you don't get Simeon back, and you're all going to die. And here's what God does. God pressures them back to salvation. 
He puts them to starving. And listen, some of you right now sitting here, some of you that are watching and listening, you've got people that you're praying for for them to come to Jesus, to come to a relationship, to be in Christ. And you're praying for them. You do realize something, that when you pray for them, what you're praying for is you're praying for the pressure. The pressure cooker to get turned up in their life that will soften their heart and turn them towards Jesus. But they come back a second time. They bring back their little brother Benjamin. So here's what I want to see. He's a beloved son. He's a picture of the suffering servant. He's a picture of the exalted sovereign. And he's also a picture of the seeking Savior. He never gives up. He's going to get them back. See, because wherever sin abounded, grace did much more. Hooper, hooper means to go over. Parasuo, that means to go over, to be abounding over and over, continually and continually. So wherever sin abounded, grace did much more superabound. You can't, you can't get more sin that God's grace will superabound over that. Listen, for his brothers, listen, they tried to kill they sold When they sold him as a slave, they were like, good riddance. Because most people died in slavery. They would never see him again. That's how cold-hearted that was. Oh, but look at the grace. Listen, the one that they set out to kill is the one that's going to save them. That's grace right there. So as the brothers come back and they bring Benjamin back, Joseph gives them food, puts it in the bag once again, and he has a special cup put in Benjamin's bag as they leave out. And they leave out, and when they leave out, Joseph sends his guys, go get them. And whenever they went to go find them, they came in, they say, listen, somebody has stole Joseph's cup, so to say. And the brothers are like, we haven't. And they quickly took their bag, and I said, the one that, that's got the cup, you take him back to Egypt as a slave. And of course, they go through, and they find the cup in Benjamin's sack. You'll never guess who steps forward and says, take me, Judah. Judah steps forward. He comes back to Joseph. And many Bible commentators say it's one of the greatest speeches in the Bible. And Judah says, hey, my father won't live through this. You take me, let him go. I'll take his place. And when, listen, that's called repentance. When he did that, Joseph sent everybody away and he broke down right in front of them and he yells out in front of them. He goes, I'm Joseph. And the Bible says that they were terrified, the brothers were, when he said that because they, they didn't recognize him. And he, listen, here's what he does. He says, come close and see. And he brings the brothers in and he hugs and kisses every single one of them. And he says, go back, get my father all come here and I will take care of you. Do you want to see a few more interesting things? Are y'all getting tired? Do you want to go home? No. Okay. <clears throat> Here's what he says to his brothers. And don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. God's the one that did this. And you know this verse. You intended harm. You intended to, He said, you meant to kill me. Yes. But God... Anytime you see that in the Bible, pay attention. That's what you intended. Oh, but God. God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save lives of many people. This was, you listen, you thought you were doing something bad to me, but this was all part of God's plan. 
What? Hey, how many of us could be right in the middle of the furnace and be like, oh, it's all part of, God, part of God's plan. God, you are destroying everything. Everything's coming unraveled, and I'm in the worst pain of my life, but I know that I'm right in the middle of your plan. How many of us have got that kind of faith? Consider it pure joy when you face various kinds of trials. <laughs> I don't. Now, a trial comes to me, and I'm like, God, help. What have I done wrong? So, so listen to this. Stephen gets down to the end of his sermon. We'll, go ahead and, I'm gonna, we'll, we'll come back. We'll get back to this again. Here's Stephen's sermon to the Sanhedrin. Here's what he says. You stiff-necked people. You know what, you know what stiff-neck means? To repent means to turn. See, when, when the Bible says something stiff, somebody stiff-necked, that means that they're so hard in their sin that they will not turn. You stiff-necked people with unaffected hearts and ears. You always, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do also. Wow. I don't go back and hear that preacher again. It's pretty rough, isn't it? But it's very true. So why do you, why do we need a Savior? As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. None of us are good in and of ourselves. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, the very best things that we can do, our good stuff, they are nothing but filthy rags in God's sight. So Jesus told them this parable, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in its open fields and go after the lost one until he finds it? Hey, listen, the sheep doesn't go looking for the shepherd. The shepherd goes looking for the sheep. If you've been saved, it's not because you found Jesus. I know that's some little popular thing we say in our little church culture. Oh yeah, I found, you didn't find Jesus, Jesus found you. You can't find Jesus. You're incapable. There's nothing in and of ourselves that's even going to go looking for Jesus. That comes from God. And then look at this. Jesus says in John 6, listen, you, go read John 6 and just compare that to the sermons you heard in church. No one can come to me unless a father who sent me draws him. We can't even do it. There has to be the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm telling you today, if you're sitting here and say, yeah, I'm saved, man, I'm born again, I'm in Christ, then you should thank God for the grace of God because that is what stirred you and drew you, and that's what he found you. You got, you got that? He came looking for you. He found you. You didn't find Jesus. He found you. Abraham wasn't worthy. Jacob wasn't worthy. What about being good people or being faithful people? God chose them. Do you guys you got that this morning? And then Joseph, he's the one who rescues and saves his killers. He said, you intended it for you to destroy me, to kill me. But God intended it for good. Some of y'all need to get this this morning because some of y'all are hating. Some of y'all are living in unforgiveness. Man, listen, you have been, there's been a great injustice done against you and you're right. It's been done, and you are absolutely right. 
But when you live in unforgiveness, you are the one who lives in the prison. The devil's got you right where he wants you, and he is stealing, killing, and destroying you right here and right now. He said, I've got every right to hate them and not forgive them. I'm not arguing that. But here's what I am arguing. Jesus says, just as you have been unconditionally forgiven, you unconditionally forgive. Period. End of the story. That's when you get set free. For the Son of Man came to seek. You read that. You heard that a hundred times in church. Look at what it's saying. He's the one doing the looking to seek and to save those who are lost. Why do I need a Savior? Well, we too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath. Because if I'm not in Christ Jesus, then I'm under the wrath of God. That's why I need a Savior. Why do I need a Savior? Because in and of myself, I cannot save myself. I cannot even find Jesus. He has to find me. Would you please stand this morning? So, so most, if not all of you, you know someone who is lost. You know someone who needs salvation. Some of you, you've been witnessing to that person. You've been sharing your testimony, and that's great. But let me tell you something. There is nothing like praying for them. It takes the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit to draw that person. It takes the shepherd going and doing the seeking. That's what you're praying for. So let's pray this morning. Y'all come down to the altar. Y'all come down here and pray for the people that are lost and pray for whatever you feel led to pray for. Y'all come down here to the altar. You got family members that are messed up and a wreck. Come pray for them. When we come to the altar and we get on our knees, we're humbling ourselves before the Lord and we're saying, God, we can't do this. Only you can do this. So as people are coming down to pray, let's pray for Israel. Ah, so God, we do lift up your nation to you. They are your chosen people. Scott, we pray for Israel today. God, we pray that you will strengthen them, that you will protect them, that you will fill them with hope, oh God, that you will draw them to the Savior Jesus, to the Messiah, the true Messiah Jesus, that through this suffering that you would open their eyes to salvation through Jesus and Messiah. So God, we pray for them right now as they are in the pressure cooker, as they are coming under attacks. So how many of you right now, you're under an attack? Man, right now you came to church or you're online and you're listening and your life is in the pressure cooker. So how do you pray when that happens? So God, 
just fill my heart with faith in your goodness, in your sovereignty, that you are in control, that your plan is going to be fulfilled. And I don't know why I'm here right now, but I know you see me. And I know you hear my prayers. So God, strengthen me. Strengthen my faith, oh God. Sanctify me. God, that your glory and your plan will be fulfilled in my life. So let's pray for those friends and those family members that are outside of Christ. So right now, God, I want to lift up. You just say their name in your heart. Other names, some of you have got multiple people. God, I pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would stir in their hearts and draw them to yourself, that you would seek them out. Oh, good shepherd, I'm asking you to go and seek them. Holy Spirit, stir in their heart and draw them to the Savior. Soften their hearts that they will hear the gospel. God, if there's any way you can use me, to share your gospel with them, to share your grace and your mercy and your goodness. God, I don't want to get in your way. I just want to see what you're doing and join you there. Does God use me to encourage, to reprove, to lovingly rebuke whatever you need to do, God? Only you can do this, and I'm praying that you will do this, O Lord. Father, we pray as a church that we would not be a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, that our hearts would be soft, that we'd be easily affected by the gospel every single day, that we'd see your grace as we go through every day of our life, O oh Lord. God, thank you that it's not based on our performance, but your goodness and your grace is based on our position in Christ. So God, help us to seek you and your kingdom first and your righteousness to live the gospel every single day See, but now, now some of you, you're struggling with some sin. So right now, would you just confess that in your heart? God, forgive me for, and just say that name it in your heart. I ask you to grant me forgiveness for my sin. True repentance. Just change my heart, oh God, where I don't love my sin anymore, but where I love you above everything else.
Say, are you needing salvation today? Or you can come down here and you can tell somebody at the front that you need somebody to pray with you. You can go back to the back corner of the church when we get through, back here where the cross is. And there'll be people there that can talk to you about salvation. And if you're online, you can send us a private message to the church and we'll get in contact with you soon. But the Holy Spirit stirring in your heart to salvation, then don't resist. Don't be like the ones that Stephen was preaching to and said you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Don't let that be said of you. Let the Holy Spirit affect, stir in your heart. Yes, God, we thank you today for your word. I thank you for these that came together today, oh God. We're so grateful. God, we pray today that we'll take what you've shown us, what you've revealed to us, and bring life transformation to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.